right. All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the last three verses, Exodus chapter 2, 23 through 25. Title to our message this morning is the God who always remembers his covenant. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 2, please remember that God gives us his word, and in that word we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've told us that you are the vine and that we are the branches and that your heavenly, fa- and your heavenly father and ours prunes those branches that we may produce more fruit. Lord, please prune us this morning. Please prune us with this truth of the covenant. That we would look to our God and have great confidence in who you are and our security in your son Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. All right, please be seated. We are having a Reformation Day party today. And part of the reason why that is is because tomorrow is Reformation Day, the 31st of October the day when Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, thus starting um, the greatest revival since Pentecost that shaped Western civilization. The cell phones that you have on your persons are thanks to the Reformation. Cars in your driveway, the refrigerators in your homes, the businesses that you go to are the result of God bringing Light out of darkness. And it's God's good providence that we're in this passage this morning um, because this passage highlights uh, reformational theology. Uh, One way to remember uh, reformed theology is through three C's. The first C is that reformed theology is uh, Calvinistic. Meaning that our salvation is not a cooperative effort between God and man. God is not pining away in heaven hoping that we will choose him. Um, The scripture says that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world according to the purpose of his will. God is sovereign. He chooses by free grace whom he will save. The second C is that reformed theology is confessional. Meaning the church... Our church, every church, is not to reinvent its theology every generation. Rather, we confess the same vital truths that have been confessed for the last 2,000 years. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father 
of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And then finally, Reformed theology is covenantal. So Calvinistic, confessional, and covenantal, meaning the Bible is not a random collection of religious stories and poetry and history and doctrine smashed together. Even what we just heard from Ben about uh, all these names and <laughs> Abram going and fighting the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, that was... That, was, that came to be because God was being faithful to Abraham. Uh, the Bible is not about two separate peoples, Israel and the church, with two separate plans. No, there's one single thread that runs through the Bible, and it ties everything together, and the beating heart of the Bible is covenant. So children, boys and girls, the three C's of Reformed theology can be remembered pretty easily by just reflecting on what you've learned about the human body. You know, there's different systems within the human body. So the first C, Calvinism, is like the muscular system. Knowing that God is sovereign over every square inch gives you spiritual muscles to face anything that you will face. Uh, the second C, confessional, is like the immune system of your body. Confessing what the church has confessed for the last 2,000 years helps prevent you from getting spiritually sick. And then the last C, covenantal, is like the skeletal system of your body. Your bones protect all of your vital organs, and likewise, God's covenant protects your most valuable possession, namely, your everlasting soul. Now, this morning, I hope it's clear which C we're looking at in our passage. Uh, the fundamental reason that God rescued Israel out of Egypt was because he remembered his covenant. God rescued Israel not because they were more righteous than Egypt, but because he had previously obligated himself by a solemn oath, a promise, a covenant. And this covenant carries with it all the sweetness and the security of God. We see four verbs in our passage this morning. So if God is in covenant with you, what that means is that he always hears you. He always remembers you. He always sees you. And he always knows you. A big idea this morning is that every deliverance God has wrought throughout history hails from his covenant of grace. Every deliverance throughout history hails from his covenant of grace. So let's begin by looking this morning at our doctrine. Now, last time we were together, Moses had to leave Egypt because Pharaoh was trying to kill him. Verse 15, Israel as a whole had rejected him. In verses 16 through 22, we see that Moses had fled to Midian where he had married his wife, Zipporah, and then had a son named Gershom. So picking up in verse 23, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Let's stop right there. Those many days here, uh, that's 40 years. Uh, Acts chapter 7 verse 30 tells us that 40 years had passed. And what we can see is that God is setting the stage to get all the glory to himself. Who would think that Moses, now an 80-year-old man, would be any sort of deliverer? Well, precisely. 
Um, he's too old, certainly, to be this great deliverer. It would be the mighty hand of God. Now, during this 40 years, the king of Egypt had died. And we need to remember that Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world. He was treated like a god in Egypt. When he spoke, all of Egypt obeyed, thus the throwing of the children into the Nile. And yet, Pharaoh could not prevent his own death. We need to remember this today as we look at the world, that kings and politicians, no matter how powerful they may seem to be, they are helpless when God requires their soul of them. And the takeaway here, especially as we approach election day here in a, in a few weeks, is that rulers ought to take heed how they rule since they too will perish just like Pharaoh did. And they too will give an account to the true king of the universe. Psalm 2 says that, Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, halfway through verse 23, we read that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Well, weren't they groaning before? Certainly they were. But there was, a, there was an increase of their groaning. Though the old king had died, the new king hadn't changed his policy of making every Israelite a slave. It, it seems the way that the text is uh, written is, is it implies that Israel had somehow hoped that a new king would usher in new policies that would, would give them deliverance. And when that didn't happen, they groaned. Four times in the passage, they groaned, they groaned, they cried, they cried. Their misery had increased when the next regime acted just as wicked as the previous one. And again, here's another takeaway. Um, as we see the problems that are in the world today, uh, it's a wrong hope to, to place our trust in just the next regime change. Well, the next election cycle, that will fix our problems. That's to put our hope in the state. It's not true. A new pharaoh did not fix Israel's problems. Likewise, a new Congress will not fix our problems, loved ones. Only God can. The reason why our rulers are wicked is because the people who vote for them are wicked. And the only thing that can change that is regeneration. When God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And when Israel saw that politics could not save them, then, then they finally cried out to the Lord. End of verse 23 says, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now, what do we know about Israel's sincerity here? Um, was this really Israel turning to God in a sincere faith and sincere repentance? No, not at all. The only sincere character in this whole story is God. Turn with me uh, to Ezekiel chapter 20. Here the prophet is rehearsing Israel's sins to Israel. And God, through Ezekiel, specifically tells us what Israel's heart looked like at the time during their stay in Egypt. 
Ezekiel chapter 20, picking up halfway through verse 4. This is what the Israelites looked like during their stay in Egypt. Let them know the abominations of their fathers and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the offspring of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But... They rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So, the time frame is so clear. When, when Israel was crying out to God in, in Exodus chapter 2, they were still worshiping the gods of Egypt. That's what verse 7 says. They were still in rebellion. That's what verse 8 says. They practiced a form of syncretism, meaning they blended the gods of Egypt together with the Lord God. And, and verse 4 says that this was an abomination. It was so bad that verse 8 says that he would have poured out his wrath upon them and destroyed them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But he didn't. Why didn't he? Look at verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So, so take that in. God rescued them even though they were idolatrous because he didn't want to profane his name. Now, this is really important. Why would God's name be profaned if he didn't rescue them? History records that Egypt had all sorts of other slaves that God didn't go and, and rescue. Why would God's name be profaned if he didn't rescue Israel? Because God made a covenant with them, a promise to them. Turn back now to Exodus chapter 2. This is the setup to the whole book of Exodus. Look at verse 24, Exodus chapter 2. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is so vital to see. God did not rescue Israel because of any merit or any righteousness that they had on their part. Israel was manifestly unrighteous. God rescued Israel only because he remembered this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is so important to see when we are kind of categorizing the, the doctrines of our salvation. It is totally true that God is free 
to show grace to whoever he wants to. He says in Romans 9.15 that I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. In other words, no one can obligate God to show them grace. Nobody can. But when God enters into a covenant, he obligates himself to show grace. Uh, To break this covenant would be to profane his own name. In other words, God would be a blasphemer if he ever broke his covenant. Now, perhaps you're thinking, what is a covenant? Well, boys and girls, for those of you who learned the, the children's catechism, you remember the question, what is a covenant? You remember what the answer is? Very good. Very good. It's also an an agreement between two or more persons. Um, so, So what was the agreement? What was the relationship? What was the promise that God had established between himself and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, God essentially promised three things to Abraham. Try to go over these quickly. Number one, God promised to multiply Abraham's offspring. God promised to multiply Abraham's offspring. He told Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, look toward the heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to me, him, so shall your offspring be. Now, this was a promise of physical descendants, numerous physical descendants. And it's true that Israel, ethnic Israel, in fact, became a great nation. But this was also a promise of spiritual descendants. Galatians 3.29 says that whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Greek, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So that's the first thing that God promised. He promised to multiply his offspring. Secondly, God promised to give Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan. He told him in Genesis 15.18, on the day... On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now again, this was a promise to Abraham's physical descendants. And they did come into possession of the land. It's true. Shortly after they left Egypt. But this was also a promise to Abraham's spiritual descendants. In Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Abraham understood that when God promised him the land of Canaan, what he was actually promising him was the whole world. Romans 4, 13 says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the meek, Abraham's offspring, for they shall inherit the earth. The third promise was that God promised to make Abraham's offspring a blessing to all nations. He promised to make Abraham's offspring a blessing to all nations. Genesis twenty-two eighteen: in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Again, this was a promise, of course, to, Israel's, uh, to Abraham's physical descendants. In the Old Testament, Israel was the light of the world, and those nations that blessed them were blessed. And those nations that cursed them, like Egypt, ended up being cursed. But ultimately, this was a promise that Jesus Christ would descend from Abraham and bless the entire world. 
Galatians 3.16, now these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Jesus Christ, the, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, became a blessing to every tribe and language and people and nation because he ransomed a people for God by his blood. So, Dear congregation, perhaps you're thinking, I'm not really sure about all this, this covenant talk. How do I understand covenant theology? Well, don't you see that this covenant that God made with Abraham, it's actually the gospel itself. The, the covenant of grace is the gospel. Um, and, and that's exactly what Paul calls it. In Galatians 3.8, it says, The scripture, first seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The covenant of grace is the gospel. But, but here's why it's important to see that it's also a covenant. The gospel is not merely good news. It's the best news in the, in the universe, that God would send his son into the world to be a substitute for sinners. But it's not just good news. It is a promise. It is an unbreakable covenant. And this covenant that God has obligated himself to is the reason why he rescued rebellious Israel out of Egypt. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. Every deliverance that, that God has wrought throughout history hails from the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is not some footnote in theological systematic books it, it is the, the whole skeletal system of every theology. So consider four quick proofs of this doctrine from Scripture, that every deliverance comes from the covenant of grace. So proof number one, the deliverance of Adam and his posterity. Proof number one, the deliverance of Adam and his posterity. God told Adam in the garden that he would surely die both body and soul, on the day that he ate of the fruit. What did Adam do? He ate of the fruit. He rebelled against God. He deserved hell. How was Adam rescued? How was his posterity rescued from the pit? God made a covenant with him. In Genesis 3.15, he promised that he would send the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. That's the first promise in the covenant of grace. Proof number two. The deliverance of Noah and his family. The deliverance of Noah and his family. Just three chapters later in the book of Genesis, the world became so corrupt, so wicked, that God said, I'm sorry that I made man, and I'm going to blot man out from the face of the earth. How was Noah and his family spared? Only through covenant. Genesis 6.18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark and you, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. Proof number three, the deliverance of Solomon. The deliverance of Solomon. King Solomon was truly the wisest man that ever lived, but near the end of his life, what did he do? He, he turned his heart away to worship other gods. In fact, he even erected a high place for the god Moloch, which required child sacrifice, 1 Kings 11.7. Why was Solomon spared? 
Why didn't he perish? Because of covenant. God told David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 15, I will raise up your offspring after you. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. But my steadfast love, my covenant, will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And then proof number four, your own, your own deliverance, your own deliverance from the wrath of God and from hell. Loved ones, how is it that you have escaped the sentence of judgment? You and I were all born guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. How, that, how is it that we have escaped the wrath of God due to our sins? Only through covenant. Uh, on the night of his death, Jesus offered up his own blood as a ransom for our sins. And Peter says that knowing that you were not ransomed uh, with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. What is this blood called? Matthew 26, 28 says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So loved ones, every deliverance in history, without exception, happens because God always keeps his covenant promise. That's why God rescued Israel out of Egypt. Not because they were righteous. They were stubborn and idolatrous. No, he saved them because he remembered his covenant. And that's why we will be saved. Um, it, it, we won't be saved because after we became Christians, we've just cleaned ourselves up enough. We won't be saved because uh, God looks at your life and he sees how much improvement you've made. Oh, he's, he's really getting along now, isn't he? He's really understanding this thing now, isn't he? He's not going to save you because you're a little bit better than your neighbor. All of that's a lie. You'll only be saved because God entered into a covenant with you and he sealed it with the blood of Christ and he obligated himself to you such that if he ever broke that covenant promise, he would profane his own name. So that's our doctrine. The, the reason that God delivers is not because of the faithfulness of man, but because of his faithfulness to his own word. So let's look then at our duty. And our first duty on this Reformation Sunday is just to comfort ourselves. It's one of the things that the Reformation brought. After years and years of, of slavish fear to this harsh God in heaven who was standing with his finger over the people of God as Rome taught, the Reformers brought in this this view of the free grace of God and, and that he always keeps his covenant. And, and, and let's look how in our passage God remembers this covenant with us. Four verbs. God hears us, number one. God remembers us, number two. God sees us, number three. And God knows us, number four. So number one, God hears us. Verse 24 says, God heard their groaning. Now this verb here, 
doesn't simply mean that God has the power to hear sound. Um, it means that he listens with benevolence. He listens with the intent of showing favor. Well, think of that. It would have been impossible for one of these Hebrew slaves to, to find himself in a conversation with great Pharaoh, let alone Pharaoh to listen to him with benevolence and favor. But here, the eternal God, Elohim in the Hebrew, this one who is altogether other, he stands outside of both space and time and he stoops down to hear the cries and the groans of his covenant people. Beloved, God cannot but hear your cries and your groans because he has bound himself to you. Are you at that place in your Christian walk where you, you've started believing the lies that, that God doesn't hear you anymore? That perhaps you're far too great of a sinner for him to hear your prayers with favor. Oh, I can't pray again. I, I've failed again. Don't you see that, that God heard the groanings of, of Israel when they were in sin and rebellion, when they were worshiping the gods of Egypt? If God heard them, many of them who, who didn't even actually believe, Jude 1.5 tells us, how much more so will he hear you who have been united to Christ through, through faith in his name? He sealed you with the blood of his son. He's filled you with his Holy Spirit. How can he not hear you when you, he, you cry out to him? Comfort yourselves, loved ones, that our God is a prayer hearing God. Even when your sins prevail against you, he will hear you. Cry to him for help. Cry to him for deliverance. The second verb is that God remembers us. God remembers us. Halfway through verse 24, we read that God remembered his covenant. God's remembering is, is far different than our remembering. Uh, we, we remember things that we had previously forgotten. I, is it just me or as you get older, do you forget more and more? And then you, you come back and you're like, I had learned that at one point. How did I forget that? When, when it says that God remembers here, it's not because it fell out of his mind. When God remembers, it means that he thinks about something intentionally. He puts it before him as a conscious decision of the will. And that, that is so other. I know that many of you are, are struggling to take even your basic thoughts captive. You know, those voices that are in your head, those accusations that you hear that you can't decipher between, is that the spirit of God, is that my own spirit, is that a demonic spirit, what is that? You hear the accusing thoughts of, this, of the evil one telling you how sinful you are, which of course those things are true often, aren't they? We're exceedingly sinful. But what you often fail to do is you, you fail to purposely fix your mind. You fail to remember the promises of the covenant. So you forget things like the promise that God has already delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. You, you forget 
the promise that he who began a good work in you will see it complete to the day of Christ Jesus. You forget those things. You forget that, that Jesus is the good shepherd, that you are his sheep, that you have been caused to hear his voice and that he gives you eternal life, that you will never perish, but he will, ne he will never let anyone snatch you out of his hand. You forget those things. But God never forgets those things. That's how he looks at you. That, that's the lens, the window through which he views you, all of his covenant promises. The third verb is that God sees us. God sees us. Verse 25 says that God saw the people of Israel. Again, this isn't meaning that God was merely spatially aware of what was taking place. Like, I can see you. That's, that's not what it means. It, it means that, that God was looking after them. We're going to see this in our Old Testament reading here in a couple weeks. But in Genesis 16, Sarah, Abraham's wife, sent Hagar and her son away out of her presence. She was, she was angry at Hagar because Ishmael had mocked her son. And Hagar was in the middle of the desert. And she sent her son to go sit over there because she didn't want to see him die. And God found her. It says the angel of the Lord appeared to her. And he made a covenant with her that he would multiply her offspring so that they could not be numbered. And then he told her to return to her mistress. And so Hagar, in verse 13, calls on the name of the Lord. And she says, you are a God of seeing. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. I've seen him who looks after me. One of the most distressing things about suffering is when you think that you're invisible, that you think that nobody sees you. But don't you see that here we have the God who sees us. To have a God in covenant with you means that he's always looking after you. Comfort yourself, dear child of God. God sees you, the psalmist says, when you sit down and when you rise up. God sees you when you're in the darkness because the darkness is not dark to him. God saw you in your mother's womb. He was forming you together, all your inward parts. God sees every one of your days. Um, they were all written in his book before you even lived one of them. You're not lost in this world. The covenant-keeping God sees you, and he'll never stop looking after you. The fourth verb is that God knows us. God knows us. The last verb at the end of verse 25 says, and, sorry, the last verb at the end of verse 25 says, and God knew, and God knew. And this is simply an amplification of the previous verses. When the Bible speaks of knowing, it, it often refers to an intimate knowing. In Genesis 4, it says that Adam knew his wife and they conceived a son. God intimately knew the sorrows 
of Israel. How? Because he sent his son to be the man of sorrows. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Isaiah 53, 4. Dear believer, you have a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who intimately knows all of your, your sufferings, all of your sorrows. And he can sympathize with every single one of them. Have you ever felt all alone and abandoned? Jesus knows. He was forsaken not only by his loved ones and his enemies, even heaven forsook him on the cross. Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me alone? Have you ever felt trapped, like there, there's just no way out of here? I, I can't go forward. I can't go back. I'm stuck. Jesus knows. Before he went to the cross, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the stress on him was so high that he sweat drops of blood. Comfort yourself, loved ones. Everything about you is known intimately by the Son of God. So those are our duties to comfort ourselves. Comfort yourself knowing that God hears you, God remembers you, God sees you, and God knows you. Let's look finally then at our delight this morning. One of the challenges of, of teaching the Bible, and I'm sure that you feel this at home with your families, is convincing your listeners that these, these words that were spoken thousands of years ago have relevance to today. Um, but this is actually the easiest thing to prove when we're speaking about God's covenant. Let's turn to our last place, Psalm chapter 105. Like Ezekiel 20 uh, Psalm 105 recounts um, Israel during the Exodus account. Starting around verse 12, you see that Israel starts out few in number. That's the reference to the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Then in verse 16 and following, God sends Joseph to Egypt where he eventually sits at the right hand of Pharaoh. In verse 23, the rest of Israel comes to Egypt Jacob and all of his sons, and then they are enslaved, verse 25 says. And then starting in verse 26 forward is the account of God delivering them from Egypt with all the plagues. Question here is, what was the foundation of God's delivering them? Well, it's the same thing that we just saw in Exodus chapter 2. Back up to verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. You're saying, okay, Pastor Josh, but how does that prove that God's covenant is relevant today? Well, look at verse 8. How long does it say that God remembers his covenant? For a 
thousand generations. For a thousand generations. O. Palmer Robertson, in his fantastic book, The Christ of the Covenants, says this, quote, clearly the reference to a thousand generations intends to depict the concept of an everlasting covenant. But just to outliteralize the literalist interpreter for a moment, some quick calculations may be made on the assumption that God's covenant promises extend to a thousand generations. Figuring on the basis of a modest 20 years per generation, the covenant promises would extend to 20,000 years. Since Abraham lived only 4,000 years ago, at least the next 16,000 years are covered by the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the, the point here is that um, there's never a time where God's covenant doesn't control all events on planet Earth. Just as the evil empire of, of Egypt was overthrown by God's remembering his covenant and all of his people were, were brought safely into the promised land so we can be certain that nothing can succeed ultimately against God's people today. That, that's, that's why the, the prophet Isaiah says things like, for the mountains may depart and, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall never be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. God keeping his covenant is the most certain truth in the universe. Um, so, so breathe that in as we finish here. The rest of your days are not governed by chance. They're governed by covenant. The wicked on the earth today are, are not restrained by, by bullets and bombs. They're, they're restrained by God's covenant. Death has been swallowed up in victory by covenant. You will one day be in paradise with God forever because of his covenant. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is God to the glory of God the Father because of covenant. This covenant is inviolable, it's invincible, it's eternal, it's enduring to a thousand generations. And perhaps you're here this morning and, and you're, you're saying to yourself, well, I want to be loved by this covenant-keeping God. I want my sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then, then here's the good news. Call upon his mighty name. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you will be brought into this covenant of grace by believing on the name of the Son. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And that is not just good news. That is an inviolable promise that God can never break. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for this Reformation Day. We thank you for pulling back the, the veil in heaven in these three verses. That's one of the reasons why, Lord, we know that your word is inspired, that, that Moses is recording things that are going on in your heart, that you are the God who hears and remembers and sees and knows. Nobody could have known those things lest you told Moses. God, help us to live out the rest of our days knowing that you hear our cries, that you look on us not to repay us according to what our sins deserve, but you choose to remember your promises to us, Lord, that you see us in our distress, that you look after us, that you know, Lord, what it is like to be human because you sent your only son who put on flesh for us. Lord, help us to celebrate your promises now as we sing and give and fellowship. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.